X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, June 24th. Today, back in the day, June 24th, 1793, the Constitution of 1793, pushed by the Jacobin Maximilien Robespierre, was adopted during the French Revolution. That Constitution had sweeping plans for democratization and wealth redistribution. Robespierre was executed in 1794 after the so-called Reign of Terror, and the Constitution of 1793 was set aside. And the Constitution of 1793 was set aside in favor of a more conservative document, the Constitution of 1795. And now Jacobin is the name of a socialist magazine. And today, back in the day, June 24, 1947, private pilot Kenneth Arnold said he saw a string of nine shiny, unidentified flying objects, UFOs, flying by Mount Rainier, not too far from here, at speeds Arnold estimated at at least 1,200 miles an hour. This was credited as the first of the modern era of UFO sightings, including a number of sightings over the next two to three weeks. His description of the objects led to the press quickly coining the term flying saucer. Unfortunately, smartphones with little video cameras hadn't been invented yet, so those sightings over those next two to three weeks didn't have video. The iPhone got a video camera in 2009. Smartphones hit critical mass in 2011. Critical mass is when a technology is adopted by a fifth of the population. More than half of Americans owned a smartphone starting in 2013. Declines in UFO sightings started around 2014. They have since reduced drastically, and many UFO interest groups have folded. A little Latin, post hoc ergo propter hoc, Latin for after this, therefore because of this, that's a fallacy. As listeners the local know, causation and correlation aren't the same thing. So no, we can't be sure that UFOs stopped coming by as often just because the extraterrestrial pilots were scared of getting their picture taken by your Samsung Galaxy or iPhone. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six news headlines. We'll talk to Rebecca Tweed on Measure 57. That's the redistricting measure that could transform how districts are drawn and who gets elected to Congress in our state. Also, an interview with C.J. Robbins, Program Coordinator for Black Male Achievement. I'm out in the woods. I have much less of an idea of what's going on. So for today's Quick 6, here's Emily Gilliland. First up, it's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I am Emily Gilliland in for Jefferson Smith. Oregon has never seen a special legislative session quite like this one. The special session officially starts today. Six police accountability bills have been introduced for the special session. Oregon law enforcement unions are raising objections to all six bills, though they insist they do want to work with legislators. Some of these bills include measures that ban the use of chokeholds and tear gas by police, also measures that would establish a statewide database to track officer discipline, revamp police discipline procedures, and give the state's attorney general the power to investigate fatal police actions. The unions argue that a ban on tear gas is too broad and could force officers to use more physical force. The unions also said legislators should further discuss a bill that would require police to intervene to stop other officers from doing something that is unethical or that violates laws, rules, or policy. Lawmakers are hopeful most of these bills will pass, but some may be referred to a work group to be taken up at a future session. Legislators will also discuss extending the ban on residential and commercial evictions during the pandemic. The current ban is set to expire at the end of June in just one week. Governor Kate Brown is likely to call a second special session later this summer. 
That session will deal with potential spending cuts and federal aid, although legislative budget subcommittees have yet to start hearings. Here's your daily dose of data. Mandatory mask wearing is going to take effect today in seven counties. Those counties are Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, Hood River, Lincoln, Marion, and Polk. It applies to stores, public transportation, and gyms, among other public sites. In Washington, masks will be mandatory statewide starting on Friday. As we track another coronavirus outbreak increase, Oregon's total is at 7,274 known cases. Yesterday brought 191 new confirmed and presumptive cases of COVID-19, and the total death toll stands at 192. County health officials said they expected cases to rise in the county as more family and social gatherings began to happen starting around Memorial Day. A quarter of the new cases are based in Multnomah County, where officials say a majority of the spread is occurring among close social networks. The goal remains to minimize the number of people that are hospitalized. Currently, there are 93 people who have tested positive for coronavirus in Oregon who are in the hospital. 24 of those patients are on ventilators. The Salem City budget reallocates police funds. During a four-hour meeting on Monday night, the council approved the $752 million fiscal year budget, which includes $48.8 million for the Salem Police Department. Although it's approved, counselors can still make changes in the budget at their discretion up to 10%. Counselors received 263 emails from community members who asked for the reallocation of police funds to other community programs. Another 286 community members asked for the funds to remain. Residents voiced their concerns about police budgets, mental illness response, and school resource officers. Some council members have called for a CAHOOTS-style mental health crisis response to be developed in Salem. That Eugene program sends social workers to respond to 911 calls involving mental health issues. Future work sessions will include discussions of the use of city funds for non-criminal matters that are handled by the police department and discussing logistics for a performance audit of the police department. In a separate but related move, Councillor Chris Hoy announced on Facebook Monday a proposal to rename Center Street to Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Salem. Protesters demand recall of Oregon City Mayor Dan Holliday. Recall Holiday campaign filed a petition to recall the mayor and two former mayors have thrown in support. Holiday's inflammatory comments about police killings and systemic racism led Oregon City's elected officials to pass a resolution in response to the killing of George Floyd. In addition to Holiday's alleged request for campaign funding as part of an impending lawsuit over a stalled construction project. The petition needs 2,400 valid signatures in the next 90 days to put a recall initiative on a local ballot. The recall campaign manager said citizens were standing up for ethical and moral leadership amid a pandemic, its economic repercussions, and the nation's reckoning over race relations. All four of Oregon City's commissioners have rebuked Holiday's recent actions and have held several special emergency meetings in response. Recalls tend to struggle in Oregon. Two targeting Governor Kate Brown failed last year, and more recent recall efforts against State Representative Tiffany Mitchell and State Senator Chuck Thompson also failed. 
Portland Max train killer Jeremy Christian has been removed from court. Christian, the man convicted of killing two men and injuring a third on a Max light rail train in Portland in 2017, will be sentenced later today. He was expected to be convicted yesterday, but Christian had to be removed from the courtroom after an outburst as the first person testified in court. Demetria Hester testified Christian threatened her and threw a bottle at her face the day before the Max stabbings, leaving her with a black eye. At the end of her testimony, she directly addressed Christian. Christian loudly responded, stood up, and threatened her. Officers quickly moved to detain him and led him out of the courtroom as Christian yelled obscenities on his way out. Multnomah County Circuit Court Judge Cheryl Albrecht said his behavior was especially egregious, so he forfeited his right to be in the courtroom during sentencing. The one speaker remaining today is Micah Fletcher, the lone survivor in Christian's attack. Christian could face a prison sentence of life without the possibility of parole. At a minimum, he faces at least life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. As the state reopens, Darcel 15 also reopens. This week marks the continued reign of local drag queen Darcel. In August 2016, Darcel, otherwise known as Walter Cole, was named the world's oldest performing drag queen by the Guinness World Record book. The club, Darcel 15, is the longest continuously running drag show on the West Coast. And Darcel might be getting another accolade. A statewide committee has nominated the club for the National Historic Register. The National Register Program Coordinator shares that this is the first Oregon business nominated specifically for its place in LGBTQ history. Stay tuned for more on that story in the months to come. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Rebecca Tweed and Jefferson Smith discuss a new ballot initiative focused on redistricting in Oregon. IP57 would move redistricting authority from the legislature over to a citizen's redistricting commission. Is this an effort to make redistricting fair and impartial? Here are Rebecca and Jefferson with more. How should districts be drawn? I don't mean district attorney districts. I mean, let's say legislative districts. Let's say congressional districts. How should those work? How should someone decide what the communities of interest are? That's what the statute says. Right now, there is a ballot measure on the topic that is gathering signatures. It's gathering signatures in different ways that have had to be done in the past because people aren't going door to door or hanging out on the max lines. Sticking a clipboard in our face and saying, hey, you want to sign my petition? But nonetheless, that discussion is in front of us and might be in front of Oregon voters this coming November. Here to talk to us about that is one of the smartest, most effective Republican operatives and strategists in our state. Her name is Rebecca Tweed, and she's coming on air right now. Rebecca Tweed, how you doing? Good morning, Jefferson. I'm doing well. How are you? Woo-wee. That's how I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, quite a time, isn't it? How are you? We just talked to Paige Richardson, who is a, a Democratic consultant, and she said, well, you know, the main, the, the main difference is that we don't, uh, you know, you can't go to their door, but we can do a lot of the other stuff. You know, we're still doing mail. We're still doing TV. What are you finding the biggest differences are for you, you and the candidates you're working with? Yeah, well, that was certainly a big change. And, you know, there were a number of weeks where even talking about politics, you know, even if you could use the new tools, 
people weren't interested, right? Everybody was worried about their health and safety, so narratives had to change. But I'd say the, the ability specifically for my Eastern Oregon and more rural candidates, you know, being able to come together on town halls and doing Zooms actually provides a way that constituents otherwise wouldn't have connected. I mean, you can't travel across seven counties in one day and, and connect with 200 people, which is what some of these town halls are able to produce right now. So that was the biggest change, you know, switching from in-person to, to digital during a time when everybody was doing it. Um, but, you know, a lot of the old school campaign tactics still work. You still have to make phone calls. You still need to send thank you notes. You still need to be genuine. You still have to do direct mail. Um, but yeah, it took some different turns than we expected. And, you know, I mean, you know, you've been a candidate. Your job as a candidate is to raise money and meet people. Those two things are very hard <laughs> in a pandemic. Yeah. So, yeah. And obviously with the ballot measure, you know, the differences you highlighted in the introduction of, you know, what we've been trying to do on this one differently, totally different ball game, not being done even around the country, actually, to, to take this approach. So we're all learning as we're doing it. Let's get to the ballot measure. I think this is one that uh, I'll say for for somebody of my politics, right, who you know, was was you know re- who registered as a member of the Democratic Party and who cares about good government. This is a this is one that I think for a bunch of our listeners is going to strike straight at the tension betwixt those things, right? That uh, to change how we do districts, which at this very moment wasn't ten years ago, but at this very moment is helping Democrats in the congressional districts in Oregon, certainly legislative districts in Oregon. And at the same time, there's a question nationwide about how we should be drawing districts in states across the country. Tell us about the initiative. Why don't you tell folks about it rather than me doing it? Sure. So the initiative uh, IP57 that's been introduced has been worked on for a number of years by, by good government groups. And the idea is to take the authority to draw legislative and congressional districts out of the hands of the legislative body, which is where it is right now, and instead introduce a 12-member Citizens Commission, uh, Citizens Redistricting Commission. It's very similar to what's been done in some other states, uh, including California and Colorado, uh, but that's what it is at the simplest, right? Remove the conflict of interest of having partisan politicians draw these lines and partisanship and quote-unquote power, you know, ebb and flow, and instead allow citizens to really take a look and say, we think this is the most representative way to draw these lines. This is what we think communities should look like uh, and have a full transparent process, which frankly isn't always the way that it can be done. Um, So that's it, right? Take the conflict of interest out uh, and put it in the hands of an equally balanced partisan pool of 12 citizens and, and let them make the assessments and draw the lines. And the timing here is, of course, important. The census is due to happen in the next year and then redistricting after that. So this is sort of the last crack to do it in advance of this time. One challenge is we're not behind a veil of ignorance. I remember back in 2010, I said, if you're going to do redistricting reform, you ought to do it when the when the election is way far away so people don't know who it's going to hurt or who it's going to help. Do it when the census is way far away. But we know what would happen now. We know what would happen is that the drawing, very, very likely, the drawing of districts would benefit Republicans and and be to the detriment of Democrats in power. Is that? Do you think that's an unfair assessment? To me, that's an unassailable assessment, but I can also be an idiot. Well, you're definitely not that. I, I don't think it's unfair, but that's not the intention. Uh, the intention is not to change the political makeup of the state. 
right? The population is what the population is. Like you said, you know, every census we're required to redraw the lines and that happens every 10 years. And the partisan makeup of the state is going to be the partisan makeup. Um, and those lines have to be drawn without assessing voter identification and, and voter parties. Uh, you know, it's just based off population and mass. Um, so I don't know that the dynamics of it would change and that would be up to the commission. What I think is more likely is that if we leave it in the hands of politicians who aren't the bad guys, but who are drawing lines for their own voting districts, there's an inherent conflict of interest there that can't be avoided. Um, and it would exist regardless of who was, you know, quote unquote, in charge of the state, right? I'd be making the same argument if Republicans had a supermajority in both chambers and we had a continued Republican Secretary of State and a Republican governor and a conservative Supreme Court that would still be a reason that I personally would support this of saying, hey, that's not how it should work. Um, and Oregon's in a unique time right now. You know, we're getting the sixth congressional district. That doesn't just drop in the middle of the state and, you know, that becomes its sole congressional district. It'll change the lines for all of the districts. And I think it's a really great opportunity to say, hey, maybe the way that we've been doing this for over 100 years in which it's only worked twice that the legislature has produced maps without it going through all the other chains. Maybe this is a good time to relook at all of the ways we do this to have a broader, more engaged citizen democracy that's doing this process and taking out that conflict. Voters will still vote at the end of the day, right? I mean, those districts, whether it's House or Senate or Congressional, are still going to represent where voters are going to be. And we have all these lines uh, and rules around what we do. But I think this is the right time to do it. Oregon's going to go through significant changes, enough to give us an extra electoral vote. Um, but we all know the voting representation of Oregon is what it is. And if that's how it continues to be, then great. At least we got there through a, a more fair and transparent process. Is there a single state that is led by Republicans in the legislature, et cetera, a single red state that is working on redistricting reform right now? I don't know that off the top of my head, but I believe there are. One last thing, and we're a little over time, but I've got to at least ask about the policy. The mechanism, the commission that is appointed, who are these folks? How do they get picked? Sure. So they're everyday Oregonians. Uh, they cannot be lobbyists, political operatives, elected officials, party officials, major donors. Uh, but they're everyday Oregonians that can apply. Uh, they will apply through the Secretary of State, just like it's being on a board. Uh, the first six, uh, the commission's made up of four of the first largest party, four of the second largest, four of everybody who's not part of those. So four, um, of, the, four of the largest and four of the second largest, that means uh, even, you say five, was it the same number for the first and second largest or a different number for the first and second largest? Four, four, and four across the board. So the way it works out right now, there'd be four Democrats, four Republicans, and four from all the other pools, including non-affiliated voters. So this guy, not, this this puts a text from a listener into some perspectives. It's totally against IP fifty seven power grab by Republicans. Uh, Oregon Democrats outnumber Republicans, but in this measure, Republicans then have equal say. So now I understand what they meant that that Democrats outnumber Republicans by a significant number, but in this in in under this mechanism, they would have the same voice in drawing the lines. As would third parties, which currently don't have any role in the state legislature either or any of those other offices. So it's an equal playing field. It's not intended to represent the party affiliation of the state because then we get the same potential partisan impacts on how the measure would work. However, 
even though it's equal four, four, and four, which we think is the best way to do it. In addition to that, in order for the maps to be adopted, there has to be uh, a majority and somebody has to be represented from each pool. So you couldn't have four Democrats and three Republicans vote on the maps that'll go forward. You couldn't have, you know, two Republicans and, or, you know, three Republicans and four independents uh, vote for it. Everybody has to be represented in that majority vote in order for the maps to be adopted. And that's also different than how it works in the legislature right now, and especially in a, in a supermajority situation. So idea is not to represent the partisan makeup of the state, but to bring an equal voice yeah. uh, to being able to say, this is what we think is fair, and this is what we think you know, represents the state the best. Rebecca Tweed, talking to us about the initiative. It has a number now, but that number will change if it's on the ballot, yeah? Yeah, we'll get a new number, um, but right now it's IP57. You can learn more about it at peoplenotpoliticiansoregon.com. That's where you can read all the stuff we've talked about today, see some of the editorials, obviously download and sign the petition. And if you send an email to the campaign, you know, we've got some great volunteer staff that are uh, answering those and being in touch with you if you have questions. But we'd love to have the support. I think this is right up the alley of where Oregon should be going uh, and appreciate being on today. Rebecca Tweed, thank you so much for taking this time. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Me too. Thanks, Jefferson. Take care. Be well. C.J. Robbins stopped in on Juneteenth to discuss his work with the program Black Male Achievement here in Portland. C.J. discussed with Carol Collymore and Jeff Selby the genesis of this community-led program, the need for interpersonal and institutional connections, the positive results from this race and gender-specific program, and the program's hopes for the future, including driving policy. C.J. Robbins uh, runs the uh, Black Male Achievement Program. And uh, C.J., it's so good to have you on the program this morning. Thanks for uh, spending your holiday with us. Oh, good morning, Jeff and Carol, and uh, happy Juneteenth to you. Thank you for having me as well. We're so glad that you woke up early with us to have this conversation about the work that you do. So, C.J., um, could you tell us a little bit about the program um, that you're running and um, the question that I, I know you get asked a lot, uh, why would you have, uh, why would we have an organization that, that specifically centers on young black men and boys? Yeah, thanks for that question. And, and again, um, it feels like morning meditation time for me. So um, it's a, possibly a, a slightly quieter version of me than, than most people get to see. Uh, I just finished reading The Anatomy of Peace in my morning, uh, morning reading today. Um, Black Male Achievement, um, I am uh, really, really excited about the work that we've been doing. The premise of Black Male Achievement um, and the goal is that every black male will have access and opportunity to health, safety, and success. Um, and just a vision that's, uh, that, that really is in line, I think, at times like these, uh, people can look at and, and get behind and believe in, um, and, and a groundswell of people. But uh, the reality is that in between, uh, when, there, when there aren't people on the streets, but the fire is still burning inside of people, um, to be free and to be their full and five-fifths Cells. Um, those are the times where there's there's structure needed in order to help bring about the changes. So, 
um, and, and building the structures and designing the structures and connecting people in ways um, that the work can get done. So in a very generic sense, that's uh, why there's a need. There's also a lot of data that shows that uh, gender and um, race-specific efforts um, get results, um, especially over a long period of time. Um, so that's kind of the premise of it. Black Male Achievement was established in uh, 2015 uh, by the City of Portland Office of Equity and Human Rights, um, but really rose out of a uh, community process, uh, really rose out of uh, people in the community who have been doing the work to improve life outcomes for black men and boys, um, saying, yes, this is something that we need. Um, and it continues to be evolving because it, we have a tremendous amount of community input into what we are and what we should be. So um, our, our work is focused on black men and boys, um, and we've actually been able to achieve some positive results. I, times like this, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm excited on Juneteenth, <laughs> of all days, on a Juneteenth that's been recognized by the city of Portland. Um, and many other entities. Um, I'm, I'm excited that, that we may uh, have some opportunities for some deep and lasting change besides holidays and, uh, and other things, but for some real deep change. So, Yeah, thank you. You know, the, the, the program I know is, um, has kind of a base uh, in the city of Portland Office of Equity and Human Rights, but it really is a community-led uh, effort. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, the structure of it? Yes, uh, yes. So uh, the effort is housed within the Office of Equity and Human Rights and really benefits from uh, that connection uh, with the work of the office. The office's focus is race uh, and disability equity. Um, and really, the heart of the office, so you can speak outward facing, you can speak inward facing, the heart of the office is race and social justice um, and this deep social justice with the focus, immediate focus on disability uh, and uh, racial equity. Um, as I know you know <laughs> yeah, quite well, Jeff, uh, but for everyone out there. So then uh, that, that allows us to do this work community-wise uh, as well. And it's really a connection from community to the institution. Um, so a great example of that, uh, some of that work uh, is a summer program uh, where we really work with young men to uh, help them. It's both a uh, workforce development, so an opportunity for them to learn and grow uh, in workforce and, and, and expand their skills. But then the deeper piece of it is we're, we're looking to build young advocates. Uh, the goal is to build uh, young men 16 to 24 um, to really kind of poke them at what is at their what questions do they have where's their passion lie um, and to put the tools in their hands to be advocates uh, for the change that they want to see in their community um, things like that you know and part, that's a partnership with Work Systems Inc that's a partnership with Multnomah County it's a partnership with several companies including Nike and Intel and uh, many other uh, uh, companies in our area that uh, that strive. Uh, for that have high, I would say, values in the way that they strive to do the work that they do. And one of those values is equity amongst all of them. Um, and then another value is of investing, investing in young men that are in their community, investing in them being uh, the greatness that they know that they can be. So, um, again, some of that, a lot of the, you know, the, the ability to build a program like that has to do with the connections that we're able to have in community, the community voice, as well as the connections that we have within institutions. Um, and the city of Portland is one of those specific institutions that's really been investing in the effort 
uh, as well as the, the other uh, organizations and companies that we work with. So uh, all of those, from the vantage point that we're at, we're able to really build and strengthen those connections with the heart of the community. So CJ, what are what are your hopes um, for uh, this amazing program? What what do you hope to see in maybe short term or long term? Um, so short term and long term, uh, short term uh, hopes are pretty clear, and I speak uh, for the executive committee of VMA in saying that we want to be uh, focused, uh, very very laser sharp focused on, on what our goals are, which I'll. I'll drop in a second and then in the immediate we want to drive policy we as men and young men want to be policy drivers specifically in those areas that we know um, that uh, are critical to the outcomes in our lives so uh, where that comes when it has to do with justice system uh, a few goals one uh, you all were mentioning there uh, just as we uh, just before uh, the segment started um, with the the redistributing of funds when it comes to police, and, uh, in that we have that conversation pretty clearly and, and directly. But it's uh, we want to make sure that the funds are going towards things that are preventative crime. We want to make sure that uh, the funds are going towards things that uh, really feed uh, people more, uh, that really do the work, uh, uh, the undergirding and underlying work. So uh, that's an immediate goal. We also have five when it comes to justice system. Uh, you know, they, they range all the way from those uh, things like not a chokehold, which are like the the, the basic level, uh, but then all the way up to the process by which funding would be uh, distributed and the, the level of community involvement in that. Those are the sorts of things that, that we, we like to pay close attention to because they're the long-term and lasting uh, effects and you know the the money part uh, and even the announcement of money is can be very general but when you get down into the specifics and the numbers of how the money is distributed um, and then the community process and that's the key it's not about money it's about process more than anything are people are people involved are people involved who are directly affected um, are people involved uh, who are black <laughs> are people involved who uh, who are who are leading some segment of the community, and are leaders who uh, whose power may not be uh, as reflective of uh, of what we would understand to be power from our dominant lens? Um, are leaders who uh, are brothers in the community who many many people follow, who their power may not be recognized? Are they being recognized? Right. Um, and so the immediate goal is to make sure that we're driving policy and, and those processes are in place to ensure that there's a, both accountability but in the structuring of the work that it's done in a way um, that is actually connected to, to the action that is happening, the people who are serving people in our community. So that's that's immediate goal. The long-term goal is to have a broader structure. Um, and if you could think of this as like making ensuring that there are there are, um, in a very simple sense, that there are more community assets for black people. Um, that is a long-term goal. And, and to state it specifically, uh, black people in this country have never had uh, the level of power that we need, right? And much of that is structural. 
um, in order to bring about uh, really the base freedom <laughs> that uh, everyone in this country not just deserves, but really has earned. Uh, and when you look at the history and the course of black people, have earned as much as, if not more than anyone else in this country. Um, and so that's not in the terms of supremacy, it's just in terms of uh, what ha- what's needed, uh, what has been taken, and what has been earned. So um, at a moment like this, uh, we both want the immediate, which is let's drive some policy, and we want the long term, which is let's build some structures. Let's build some wealth-driving, uh, power-driving structures. Absolutely. It's, it's all about the system, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. Well, CJ, yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your holiday to speak with us on uh, on air. Thank you to Rebecca and CJ for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Best of Portland voting is happening. You can go to bit.ly slash xrayfm2020. It's the last week. You can also go to xray.fm. We ought to have a vote link there. You can also go to Willamette Week and vote there. Let's stick together while we're apart. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.